As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. There was just one quote yesterday that stood out for many of you at home, I know. It was from Mike Wilson and Morgan Stanley, and it read as follows. Equity markets survived a crucial test of support last week. That suggests this bear market rally, Tom, is not ready to end just yet. How much of a change was that from Mike and the team? This is a pretty substantial change. We're going to dive into that right now with Mike Wilson. Mike, John wants to dive into this. I'm going to, I'm going to talk right now. I'm going to make some news here, Mike Wilson. So help me out. The great Ralph Ancampora was on a while back, and he said, look, there was an October bottom. We've heard this from a few other select people. With this more optimistic call by you, can you call an October bottom? Can we call it the Ancampora Wilson bottom? Well, good morning, guys. Uh, thanks for having me, as usual. Um, well, we did call that bottom uh, in October, uh, and we thought it would you know, be a substantial rally, 15 20%. We got that rally, and then we decided, well, the risk-reward is no longer attractive. And so we backed off of that, and we said we'd probably go down and retest those lows at a minimum and probably take it out, which is really based on our fundamental view that you know, the earnings recession is now in place. People acknowledge that, but I think there's a very wide range of how deep that uh, earnings recession is going to be with us kind of on the, the deeper end of that range. Now, this past weekend, we looked at the chart, but we have to be, you know, we have to be objective about what we see. We're, we're technicians in addition to fundamental strategists, and we looked at the, at, the, at the price action last week, and we actually talked about it in the, week, the, the note the week before. We said, look, we're going to probably test this level. If it holds, it, it'll be a constructive marker, at least in the short term. And that's how we're viewing it now, Tom. It's a short-term positive I don't think it changes our intermediate term view that, you know, the risk reward is still pretty lousy at 4,100 because of that earnings recession view that we have on the fundamental side. So we're we remain in a trader's market. And part of our job is to help people navigate that. So, Mike, just to be clear, how different is this call compared to the call for the tactical rally you made back in October? Oh, it's very different, John, because, you know, in October we were trading 3,500. The valuations were 15, 20 percent lower. Uh, interest rates, you know, were higher. We felt like they were going to come down. So we had a lot of catalysts, China, you know, reopening. There were a lot of reasons to believe that that was a, a very tradable low, not just for trader types, but for people who run real capital. Um, and it turned out to be the case. So, you know, we don't always get that stuff right. It's impossible to get it right every time. Um, so this is much, this is much more tactical. This is just sort of saying, look, we acknowledge that the tactical picture held uh, we didn't know that was going to be the case. And so you have to respect that. And, and, and hey, they could turn down this afternoon again 
for all I know, given what Jay Powell is going to say in his testimony. I, I, you know, I have no idea. Maybe that triggers people to get negative. One thing I will say to you all, however, is that we're pretty confident that between now and the next earnings season, which isn't that far away, that will be when we think the next you know, bear market kind of decline happens. Uh, maybe like a more meaningful decline, 10% plus. So, Mike, we can get further down the road in just a moment. I just want to sit on the early part of this year. It's difficult to get everything right. You put out a note early in the year and you said 3900 was an easy sell. What's more difficult about it now besides the technical point that you've made? Well, I think there's a couple things you have to acknowledge. I mean, the, the, the economic data has been better. Uh, you know, China's reopening is kind of just getting going and they, they've kind of held back. They could get they could gather some steam. Um, you know, so those are things you have to say. Look, I mean, I think people came into this year feeling as if the recession was inevitable. And that no longer is the case. It's probably 30% chance, maybe 40% chance at best. And, and that can keep animal spirits alive. The other thing that's happened, John, is we've talked about uh, multiple times, is this liquidity picture from outside the U.S. So the Fed's doing their job trying to tighten financial conditions. The problem for them is that we have the Bank of Japan and we have the PBOC adding liquidity, and you have a dollar that's kind of softening up, which is kind of neutralizing you know, the Fed's goals of tightening financial conditions. And that's also kind of breathed some life into risk assets. So that's the only thing that's changed. Um, ultimately, we think, you know, uh, valuations and the fundamentals, meaning earnings, will determine where stock prices trade. That setup is not particularly great, particularly the move higher in rates this year. Given some of the changes that you talked about just now, Mike, how much does that change what floor you could see in your bear uh, scenario for equities? Well, I mean, look, we have to be flexible. I mean, we're trying to, you know, also service a lot of different types of clients, right? Whether we're talking about trader types or we're talking about asset owners, you know, for the asset owner crowd, we've been pretty adamant. You know, we felt like the fall was a really good entry point where people had a longer time horizon. And if you added risk there, you probably just stay with it. Um, you know, I, I, I do think people that are getting a bit carried away on what they've been buying. Okay. So I think they're you know, given the rally that we saw in the fall versus the rally we've seen this year, they have very different sort of complexions, right? The rally in the fall was based on, we think, fundamentals, meaning rates coming down, uh, economic data getting better because of China, globally at least, and that would help the kind of cyclical uh, type areas of the market. Then we had this more speculative rally that started in January, kind of buying last year's losers, which was all the growth stocks and the, the meme stocks, whatever you want to call them. And those have just gotten out of control again, particularly in the context of higher rates. So I think there's there's a lot going on, right? And I, and I think there's two ways to think about it. If you have kind of, you know, names that you want to own, through, you know, you want to underwrite through what we think is going to be a difficult time for earnings, and you say, look, I, I think there's value in this security for the next three years, great. You should just own those through that period. However, there's a lot of stuff that's gotten dragged along here that is wildly speculative now, in my view. It's, it's, it's actually somewhat reckless. And, and that's the stuff that you got to be really careful It's in your portfolio got to get it out of there because you know, that stuff has gotten revalued in a way that doesn't make much sense to us. What kind of downside could you be talking about? And I assume you're talking big tech names as well as some of the other meme stocks. Well, for some of this stuff, I mean, I mean, I think there's plenty of stocks that are probably going to go bankrupt. You know, I mean, I, I don't think that's a crazy statement, but, but that's not the bulk of the stock market. OK, so that, this, is a, this is a pocket of the stock market. Um, and then I would say, but overall, like the growthier stuff and the thing that even the cyclical names that have gone too far now, could have as much as 20% downside, no problem. I mean, like that, that, I mean, our valuation work would suggest that even without the earnings recession, right, the valuations are kind of out of bounds again. So it's a stock picker's market. A lot of people are saying that, you know, 
that's usually what people say, by the way, when they're having a hard time calling the direction of the market. Um, we do it too. Um, and uh, so, you know, I pray, oh, it's a stock picking market. Well, that's hard. Okay. So, you know, that's not an easy game to play, uh, but it is a stock picking market. And, and the stock, uh, the stocks that are likely to go up versus down is probably less than 50%. It's a stock picking market with not a great, you know, macro backdrop. So that's that's the challenge. Mike, I want to go to what I think is the great divide. As Taleb says, the gravity is returned to the system. You remember this when you were studying this in Ann Arbor years ago. The bottom line is when you get a normal interest rate structure, all of a sudden down the income statement matters. Divide for us now how you look at those that profit from those that do not profit. That seems to be a new metric. Yeah, I mean, I don't think this is a new metric. I think it's a forgotten metric, which is that, you know, your your costs sit on your balance sheet until they have to hit the income statement. And, you know, this whole idea of accrual versus cash accounting, which we did learn, you know, seems like 40 years, probably was 40 years ago. Um, and, you know, I have a, a history of studying accounting, and it's a, it's a great tool to kind of see through the noise. And this is why we, you know, our note this past week, we, highlighted a great report done by our uh, global tax valuation team uh, and basically highlighting this you know, spread between cash flow and net income that's being reported. That's all based on accruals. And so it, you know, it ties into everything we've been talking about for the last year, year and a half, which is the pandemic, uh, the lockdowns, you know, mm -hmm. basically brought on this incredible period of over-earning by corporations because their costs were slower to increase and their revenues came back. But now we have the exact opposite, which is that companies, accru you know, basically accrued these costs on the balance sheet at a bad time when, you know, inflation was running hot and they thought business was going to continue to be that strong. So they right. built for it does not actually happen now. And that has to flow through the income statement and that will hurt margins. And that's the story. The question is, will the markets look through that and suggest, well, we know this is temporary. Ultimately, companies get their head around that, which we agree with. But our experience is that markets will not look through it if the earnings degradation is as severe as we think it's going to be. Mike, I mentioned there that you see a difference between what could develop in the real economy and what could happen with earnings. How well received is that with clients at the moment, Mike? Well, look, investors understand that concept. That's, I didn't invent that. So, I mean, I think they very much appreciate that concept. The problem is that it's noisy. Um, and there is this you know, we live in this world now where there's sort of uh, almost like hand to mouth guidance, you know, the Fed, you know, doing it for the bond market and companies doing it for the stock market. And so it, it's a process that takes longer than it probably should. Um, and uh, and that's what's frustrating, I think, for some investors who are in the weeds on this where we are. It's like, well, my goodness, it's pretty obvious what's about to happen. You know, why is the market taking so long to kind of price this? That's just the way it is. And that's, that's not a new phenomenon. That's kind of the way it always is at this stage. When you get a significant earnings recession, it just takes longer than you, than you would think to get it priced. Do you get more questions about single names now, Mike? And what single stock ideas do you offer them? We do. But, you know, I think most of our clients are pretty good at that job. I mean, they do a good job. That's, a, that's their job, essentially. We absolutely help them. We, run, we do run a model portfolio. As you know, we've had great success with that. Uh, but it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a helpful tool. And then we run a lot of screens for people based on our view of the world from a macro standpoint, saying, okay, these factor variables should be uh, in effect, and this is what you want to, you know, kind of put in your portfolio. We run those screens, and that's kind of how we go at it. We don't, we don't, you know, talk specifics necessarily with clients around, uh, you know, individual companies as much as, you know, say our analyst team does 
which is really their job. But let's talk about sectors, in particular with margin compression. If the service sector if sector is, uh, is possibly seeing more, perhaps, wage pressure, need to pay more to people to bring them in the door than, say, tech stocks, how do you look at where margin compression is going to be the greatest and what could potentially get hit as people trickle through and realize this new kind of reality? Well, that's exactly right. Now, one of the other features we just touch on for a second is that the recovery itself was sort of two-stage, right? It was goods first, then services. Normally, in a, in a normal recovery, everything comes back at the same time. So you have this sort of rolling recovery and now rolling recession. Tech is in a recession right now. I think that's obvious, right? They're losing, uh, you know, they're, 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 they're seeing negative uh, growth. Uh, they're, they're laying people off more aggressively in other sectors. And I think the big question for the economy is, does that spill over into the services sector, which is where employment really lives? Right? I mean, that's that's you know, small, medium businesses and services companies employ a lot more people, as you suggested. Um, I, look, we think ultimately this will roll through kind of the entire economy. Um, it'll, you know, services will probably get hit later in the year when other businesses are showing weakness, and then we're seeing layoffs there, which then people spend less money. So it's sort of a circular argument, but clearly this idea of operational efficiency is what the market's paying for. So companies that are showing good inventory controls, labor costs as a percentage of you know cost of goods sold are smaller, and then CapEx depreciation is lower. And and this word efficiency has been popping up. I find it uh, very interesting. You know, we're hearing it from a lot of different companies. We've been talking about that for 12 months. So, the, you know, people are catching on. And uh, but we think that it's not over. We think the market will continue to pay for companies that are very efficient with their expenses and can get the revenue to the bottom line. This is fascinating, Mike. Are you saying that in the months to come, the goods sectors that perhaps have already seen the downturn will outperform as margin pressures and some of the downturns start to hit the later recovering sectors, namely services, leisure, hospitality? We think that could be the case. I wouldn't say that's like a high conviction uh, view, but we do think that a lot of the good sector stocks in particular, and even the earnings forecasts have come down because it's obvious, right? They, you know, we had a pull forward of demand. And so those numbers have been reset. The question is, what does the demand profile look like for some of those businesses that were basically COVID winners? Are they, are they winners in the long term? That's to be determined. Uh, and then services, we do think it's got a bit frothy and it's got, you know, there's be, there'll be demand destruction as prices are a bit out of control there. Um, so it's just messy, you know, and that's why I think this, you know, our view, we do a lot of work on top down earnings, which we have high conviction in. That way, you know, we don't have to focus so much on trying to call the economy, which I think is a much trickier, uh, you know, thing to do. Calling a recession is, is very hard because you never know when that light switch is going to go off on employment. Um, but when it does, it's, you know, it's immediate and it's just there's no lead time. It's just all of a sudden it hits you. With the earnings picture, we can see out 12 months pretty good. And that's why we've had conviction there. Mike, well said. As always, fantastic to catch up with you, sir. Mike Wilson there of Morgan Stanley. Thank you. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. 
I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Dana Peterson doesn't call it Humphrey Hawkins. She calls it must listen. She listens to every single word two days at running. She's chief economist at the conference board. Dana, what I love about your work is its consumer foundation at the conference board, maybe a little business investment as well. You are heated that measured is not 50 basis points and that we've got a measured Fed that will stay measured and stay at 25 beeps, whatever that path is. Discuss the nuance of a measured Fed versus the jump condition that some are calling for. Sure. I think that a 50 basis point hike is actually inflammatory or would raise a lot of concerns among markets and also consumers and and businesses that the Fed is losing control over inflation, at least the fight over inflation. So I think the Fed's probably going to opt for more 25 basis uh, point hikes, probably three more, maybe even more greater than that. Maybe we'll get to uh, something close to 6%. It's not really clear, but it's really going to depend upon inflation and also the labor market and whether wages are starting to cool at all. And so I think that, you know, certainly the Fed does not want to cause alarm and will probably go with 25 basis points in terms of interest rate hikes going forward. Dana, you've got unique visibility into consumer confidence and, frankly, consumer spending, which is the engine of this economy. Are you seeing signs of softening materially or not really because we are seeing that kind of wage increase that a lot of people have been waiting for? It's interesting. Consumers are divided. In terms of the present situation, they're saying, we're fine. Most of us are working. Many of us who switch jobs are seeing wage increases. We may still have a little bit of spending, uh, a little bit of savings that we can spend. We have credit cards we're, and we're continuing to spend. However, looking at the future, they still say, hey, we do expect a recession at some point. We're concerned about job prospects. We're concerned about business, the business environment. And we're concerned about our own income. So it's really a mixed picture in terms of how consumers are feeling. How divided is it in terms of the higher income and the lower income sectors? And I ask this as you start to see companies increasingly cater to wealthy individuals who still have more than a trillion dollars of discretionary savings in their uh, checking accounts. That's according to some metrics. And then you have the others who are looking at shrinking uh, spending capabilities. How much do you see that reflected in sentiment? Sure, it's interesting. In the last reading, folks making thirty-five between thirty-five thousand and seventy-five thousand were uh, the most concerned about the outlook. And indeed, when we look at what consumers are saying they're going to do regarding spending, they they're saying they're not going to buy cars or homes, and they're even pulling back on expect expectations for going on vacation. And that's really important because that's a, a harbinger of what's going to happen in the services sector. Dana. With all of the uncertainties that are out there, to me, the great divide is the domestic economy versus foreign dynamics. And of course, we look at that subdivided into this strange thing called domestic final sales. Does domestic final sales indicate we are near recession? 
Well, it's it's a mix. Again, consumers uh, certainly did spend a lot of money in January. Uh, they were pulling back on consumption late last year, but then there was a big spurt. But certainly when we look at business investment, that's already starting to roll over. And certainly investment in CapEx, uh, structures, and the residential investment environment are all weakening. And really the last shoe to fall is going to be the consumer, especially with respect to purchasing services. Well, this is the conference board expertise. Do you see the tea leaves there of a consumer that could fail? Well, I think <laughs> that's the tough part. Our leading indicators continue to signal recession. Indeed, they say that recession should be happening right about now, but consumers are defying all expectations. So I think we really need to see the data that's going to come out for February. Certainly January was a pretty good month in terms of weather. February was horrible. <clears throat> March was worse. And we'll see if that's borne out in the data. Dana Peterson, I love that. We're going to codify that. That's going to be in all of our ads going forward, Dana. <laughs> February was horrible. March was worse. Dana Peterson of the Conference Board. Thank you. interesting to see how the doves have become hawks, this idea that people who had uh, erred on the side of not yeah. doing as much are now saying, this is a different scenario given the inflation. What's important here is to understand that if you do equities, bonds, currencies, commodities, all sorts of good things can happen. And what's great is at any given firm, the guy who's the quote-unquote fixed strategist it's always their fault. <laughs> well, it's, 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 you know, if it's equities, okay, you can part. Mike Wilson, just equities, partition that. But if you're a fixed strategist, every day it can be your fault. Yeah, even worse. <laughs> you're supposed to know what's going on at a time when it's very difficult <clears throat> to do so. Ian Steely understands the angst of that very clearly. He is an international CIO for fixed income at JP Morgan Asset Management and joins us here in studio. And I'm so glad that you are, Ian, because... I'm really struck by what Robert Holtzman said, the ECB a governing council member this morning, that he potentially backs raising rates in Europe by 200 basis points more this year, potentially 450 basis point <laughs> rate hikes. How outlandish is this? How much is this starting to actually gain traction? So he's probably at the the, hawk, the more hawkish end of, of ECB members. But I think the, the reality is the ECB have still got the inflation problem to deal with. So everyone over here is well aware that core inflation is coming down, albeit, albeit slower than, than the Fed would like it to be. That's not the case in Europe. You know, core inflation continues to move higher in Europe. The way the, the mix of core inflation is likely to be calculated over the coming months, it's going to continue to move higher. So the ECB, who were behind the curve, who were slower to the party of, of rate hiking than other central banks, is, is playing catch up. And it feels like they're going to have to go a little bit harder. Although I think we need, need to be clear, this is the, probably the, the top end of expectations. <laughs> the top end, perhaps. Extreme top yeah. end. That said, this comes at a time when so many people have been bullish on Europe. They've seen the surprise of a warmer than expected winter. They've expected to see uh, perhaps more growth in tandem with inflation. Do you push back against that? No, I think that, that's, that's right. I think Europe has, I mean, there were big, big concerns about Europe last summer, the, the gas problems and, and the hikes. I mean, the Bundesbank, I think at one point was saying Germany could fall 5% GDP. And obviously that hasn't transpired. And now you've got an environment when Europe's coming out the other side, the gas tanks are you know, much fuller than, than was expected come the end of the winter. And people are seeing a really good cycle out of Europe. And again, that goes into the problem the ECB's got to deal with. They've got 
the growth, but they've also got the inflation and they've got, they're going to have to keep going. Ian, coming out of the pandemic, and you've got one of the toughest jobs at your shop, and that is just simply looking across FIC, across all of commodities, currencies, and fixed income and, and, and such. What do the correlations look like for next year? How predictive or how tight are the relationships of fixed income, commodities, and currencies right now? I think what you're going to see is you are going to see, obviously, we saw a big correlation last year, not just, I think, importantly, not just in FIC last year, it was across you know, fixed income, across equities, everything was going down in price. And I think we are going to see a bit of a difference this year because of the huge repricing that we saw last in year income. in fixed yeah, income. Yeah. And then you've got, as I say, some central banks, which are much further ahead. You've got, say, the Bank of Canada, who are likely to pause right. this week. You had a bit of more dovish message out of Australia overnight. You know, The Fed, there's, there's a decent amount priced in now. And then there's the ECB and other central banks. Whatever the relationship is, and I don't even want to go in, we don't have time here to go into you know fancy talk, but do you assume that the dampening going through 2023 and 2024 is a normal, what's called, synodal dampening, where we're just going like this, easing our way along? Or are we going to see more abrupt jump conditions within the relationships of fixed income currencies and commodities? I think we're going to have a slower journey or a more smoother journey than we saw last year. You know, outside of the European Central Bank, I think the central banks want to slow down the pace of, of hiking, which is going to bring down market volatility. And then it's going to be a case of later in the year, how high do rates yeah, least, get? And then do we do we have to do right. some sharp decreases if we do start to see a slowdown? And Lisa, this is just critical, the extension of the x-axis out where people, and particularly financial media, were always like, what's June look like? And the real question is, is what does 2025 look like? Exactly, especially once you've worked through some of this reset. Going back to this idea of the rate hikes that you're talking about, why haven't we seen more spread risk in Europe? Why haven't we seen more contagion really feeding through to the peripheral spreads, the peripheral bond yields that typically would blow out in this kind of situation? So I think there's, there's a couple of things there. I mean, firstly, we did see that concern around spread risk in Europe last year, last summer, when we had these big concerns around a slowdown. And as we've come through that and the slowdown hasn't materialized and economic growth and strength looks better in, in Europe, people are getting a bit more confidence around Europe. And we've seen that not just in peripheries, we've seen that in credit spreads, high yield spreads. They've basically come back down to pretty much be in line with where, where the US is trading. Um, but I think you've also got a much more joined up Europe than I can than I can really ever remember with, with the recovery plan in place and and the, the coordination that we've seen across Europe. So it feels that we haven't got that sort of spread risk, the, the, the periphery risk that we've seen through previous cycles and that we've all come to know over the last decade or so. And if that goes away, then actually there's some decent yields on offer earning some of these bonds. Which is fascinating at a time when a lot of our guests come on and they say, you know, perhaps people have overplayed the euro and people are uh, perhaps uh, overseeing what's going to happen with the dollar and the potential strength later on. Do you push back against that and say not only do you have upsides uh, risk with respect to ECB rates, but also the strength, the resilience can maintain that. I, I would say both of those. And I would also add just the flow dynamic. So if you think about what's been the case of Europe over the last decade, negatively yielding bonds. I mean, who wanted to invest in Europe? Who wanted to buy negatively yielding bonds? Well, that's not the case at the moment. You know, two-year two -year Germany now at 3%. You're getting north of 4% across the Italian 
curve, you're getting seven, seven and a half percent across the European high yield mix. And that's before you even move into into the dangerous world of equities. Um, so I think there's just a lot of demand that will come back into uh, into fixed income. People who haven't wanted to own European fixed income for a long time. Where on duration are you then? I mean, you know, on a global basis, is there comfort in the belly? Do you have to go short term? I'm hearing that you don't. Or can you actually be brave like the equity people <laughs> and extend out duration? So I, th- I think you still want to. I, I, so we're still playing for the for the curve to actually flatten a bit further from here. We think there is still concerns that the central banks around the world maybe have to do a little bit more that's priced. Although the the repricing that we've seen over the last few weeks has has been very helpful. Um, and then really it's the back end of the curve that gives you that ballast in a portfolio. Right. That's the bit of the curve that will do very well, well if things go things go badly and suddenly fixed income yields move move higher and, and the capital gains could come from from that part of the I market. Mean, can I ask? Okay, I will. Ian, I'm asking for a friend and you load the <laughs> boat on the 97-year Austrian piece right now down down 71% from its peak. I mean, do you extend duration out I don't 97 know. years? So that that is I think that now is a, we were looking at it last week. I think that is now at the lowest the lowest price on the 100 year bond there. Oh, thank um, you. Yeah. <laughs> I noticed that earlier. Yes, we did notice that. Continue. So, so I'm, I think, obviously, then you've got to take into account that's obviously the European curve where there must possibly more still going through from an ECB standpoint. I think in the US, if you want to go out and you look at the 10-year part of the curve and you're, you're 4%, maybe it goes to four and a quarter. I can't see it going a huge amount higher than that. And that means that over the next well, few years, that looks like a decent investment. And I think you know, <clears throat> buying bonds, definitely more attractive than they were at any point point last year. And, th- and thankfully, the rally that happened in January has reversed a bit to give us another opportunity to go back into the market. Don't be a stranger, Ian. Lovely to see you here in our New York studios. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising healthcare costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Lupin Rahman joins us. We are thrilled to have her back, really to begin our coverage of what the International Monetary Fund will be doing here one month out. We're making a lot of good plans on it. John Farrow leading our planning meetings on IMF spring meetings. Lupin Rahman is with PIMCO and is well-versed on the emerging markets. Lupin, let's start with the beginning. To me, there's two 
EMs at the minimum, the frontier economies, greatly beleaguered, and another EM of great prosperity? Or dare I say, could there be three worlds of EM? Which is it? I think EM is extremely diversified right now, and you hit the nail on the head in terms of bifurcating the frontier economies, especially the, the low single B high yield economies that are facing a lot of stress. Some of them have very large external financing needs. They're having to have IMF programs or other bilateral lines from creditors like the, the Gulf states and, and China. Um, and then there is the, the rest of EM. There is the investment grade portion and the double B portion of the EM asset class, even there, there's a lot of diversification and differentiation, both in terms of the balance sheets, mm -hmm. as well as how these economies are coming out of, of this COVID and um, growth cycle. Do you look at this as country by country or by asset class or even subsets of asset class? You have to look at all, unfortunately. Um, I don't think EM is a one-size-fits-all in terms of the framework or model that, that you need to use. Um, and so, you know, really thinking about asset classes and regions um, makes a lot of sense right now, as well as countries that perhaps are going to benefit more secularly from the nearshoring and structural shifts that are occurring uh, both in the global and macro playing field for EM. Lubin, I was reading this morning all of the rhetoric, the fiery rhetoric coming from the uh, Chinese Communist Party, coming from leaders talking about the increasingly fractious relationship between the U.S. and China. I hear the same coming from a lot of U.S. officials. What's the investment consequence of this? Because right now I'm still seeing a lot of people say Chinese debt, Chinese equities, they're a buy. I think the, the main investment implication from this is to really think about EM in terms of the various centers of global growth and drivers of global growth. For EM as a whole, this fractionalization that, that we're seeing much more of from, from the US and China trade relations and geopolitics is really going to be a, a headwind for many countries within the asset class. Slow globalization, as the, as the IMF has coined the term, is not a positive for the EM asset class as a whole. Having said that, there are areas that are going to be growing and perhaps benefiting from this. Um, countries like Mexico, countries like India, many other smaller emerging markets that perhaps have a niche in particular parts of the supply chain. And so for, for the EM asset class, I think the investment implication really is to start from the bottom up and really focus on country by country selection in terms of really thinking about the, the investment opportunities that are out there. Specifically with China, I think about Mark Mobius, the emerging markets investor who complained that he had uh, some money in China that he couldn't get out because of all of the red tape that he had to go through to bring the money out of the country. In your view, is China not uninvestable, but increasingly a fraught investing proposition that perhaps isn't recognized in pricing currently? Well, I think that, you know, looking at the, the fixed income opportunities in, in China over the cyclical horizon, you know, we are a bit more cautious given the opportunities elsewhere within the, the fixed income world as well as within emerging markets. So if you're looking at the, the level of real rates, really you're getting better opportunities elsewhere, whether it's Brazil or even Mexico. If you're looking at currency plays, perhaps the CNY is not the best play right now given with outbound tourism, you may see capital outflows resuming. So I think that from an investment perspective, there are more interesting opportunities from a risk-adjusted perspective elsewhere within EM.
Lupin Ramad of PIMCO. Lupin, thank you. On EM, China, and whether it's investable or not. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.